You are listening to a podcast from The National. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina Alarabi, Editor-in-Chief of The National. And this week, we're going beyond the headlines to understand one of the gravest challenges facing our planet. The world's oceans, which life itself relies on, are in danger. From pollution to overfishing, the damage is monumental. And yet, not all is lost. Conservation efforts and coalition building across government, businesses, and NGOs can help protect marine life, and at times, even reverse some of the damage. And it's not only the oceans. As we think about nature and biodiversity, we must think about the ways that we can protect our environment for today and tomorrow. I'm joined by Enrique Sala, National Geographic's Explorer-in-Residence, and lead on the Pristine Seas Initiative that seeks to restore the health of our oceans. Enrique's initiative has helped to create 21 of the largest marine reserves on the planet, covering an area of over 5 million square kilometers. And now he is looking towards the land. How can we protect and conserve some of our most pristine areas on terra firma? Much work remains to be done, which is in part why Enrique is in Abu Dhabi. He's here taking part in the World Oceans Summit. So, Enrique, welcome. Thank you, Mina. I'm very happy to be here. So I'd like to start by speaking about your work um, on protected marine areas. The target of 30% by 2030 is an ambitious one. Can it actually be made a reality? Well, it has to. And this is just a milestone because the science is telling us that we need half of the planet. That means half of the land and half of the ocean in natural state if we want to prevent a crisis of extinction, but also if we want to prevent catastrophic climate change, because without nature, we will not be able to achieve the climate targets. So how do we go about doing that? Well, first people need to understand why we need to protect the ocean and the land. And you know, we cannot think of the earth in silos. There are conferences in the ocean, right? We are here this week in Abu Dhabi because of the World Ocean Summit. And then there are conferences on biodiversity and forest and climate. But we cannot pretend that we're going to solve the problems of one of these areas without fixing everything else. Because we need to think of the earth like a living system. You know, if we want to preserve the coral reefs, we actually need more forests on the land because forests absorb much of the CO2 pollution that we throw in the atmosphere and help to mitigate climate change, which in turn helps to you know, mitigate the effects on coral reefs. So everything is related. And right now, unfortunately, only 15% of the land is in legally designated protected areas like national parks, and only 5% of the ocean is in protected areas. So we need to do much more. Now, you, you raise the issues of um, the lands that actually need to be protected, but we live in a time when population growth is accelerated. And so people would argue back and say, but we need this land because where will people live? We have to give space for people to get out of poverty, to live in comfortable places as middle classes in certain parts of Asia, for example, grow. They need more space. So how do you respond to that? There are two issues here. One is urbanization, where most people are going to live. Right now, half of the world's population are living in cities, and that's supposed to increase. And the other issue is food production, mostly agriculture, which is the main cause for loss of nature, of biodiversity. Agriculture is wiping out entire ecosystems. Just think about the palm oil 
plantations in Indonesia, for example, as one example, where the forests are raised and with them goes thousands and thousands and thousands of species, including the beautiful orangutans and the hornbills. And uh, there's going to be, no, no, the problem is not going to be that people will not have space to live because cities are the most cost-efficient ways for people to to live and the per capita footprint of a person in a city is larger than in a suburban area in the US, for example. The problem is agriculture and, and food production that has been done in such an extensive, wasteful, inefficient, and over-subsidized way, and also very polluting, right? And we don't need more land to produce food. People will say, yeah, but we need to feed 10 billion people. We already produce food for 10 billion people, only that we waste a third of it globally. So cutting out food waste is one policy recommendation that you would say is, is vital. What are two others? What three policy recommendations should policymakers take on? Well, one is the subsidies to agriculture and fisheries. Every year, half a, bill, half a trillion dollars go to agricultural subsidies and $35 billion go to fishing subsidies. And most of these subsidies for, to fishing, for example, help to subsidize destructive fishing practices. So we are using taxpayers' money. The governments are subsidizing the activities that continue to perpetuate the problem. That's a, that's a big thing. So reform of subsidies, that's one. The second one is we need a shift from the current industrial agriculture to regenerative agriculture. We need an agriculture that where the plants help to produce soil like they have always done. The soil helps to protect from floods. The soil also captures an incredible amount of carbon which helps us mitigate climate change. Instead, we have monocultures like corn and soy in the Midwest in the United States. And every time it rains a lot, then you have all this soil, millions of tons of soil that go every year into the Gulf of Mexico. We are throwing away the work of nature, you know, thousands of years of work of producing topsoil, which is what we need to grow our crops. We are throwing it away because of this uh, really inefficient practices. We are growing food as though we had five planets. Now, you sound very, very uh, stern warning here, uh, partly because of the time scale that we're looking at. We need to move very quickly. But partly also because what you're talking about affects millions and millions of people, whether it's fishermen or farmers, who might hear this and feel that they're being targeted, that their livelihoods are being targeted. And they say change is too difficult. Change won't come in time. In the meantime, how do I protect my income? and take care of my family. But you've had experience here where you've actually changed fishing practices to be positive and to reap back economic benefits because economics is a big part of this. Tell us about that. Yeah, the this idea that more protection is targeting local groups and local communities is a myth. Actually, it's the work of the large industrial corporations that is affecting the local farmers and local fishermen. No, local people have been, you look at indigenous groups or, lo or local communities, they have persisted, they have survived in sometimes difficult environments for thousands of years because they have lived in balance with these environments. It's the arrival of the industrial 
massive food companies that has changed the balance. So in the ocean, what we have seen is that there are areas where fishing was so bad that the fishermen had nothing left to fish. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you a story. In there is a place called Cabo Pulmo in Baja California in Mexico. I went there for the first time in 1999. The fishermen were so upset with not having enough fish to catch that they did something that nobody expected. They decided to fish completely. They created a national park hmm. in the sea, a no-take marine reserve. I went back 10 years later, and I couldn't believe what I saw. I dived, and as soon as my bubbles clear, those ribs that had been empty and underwater desert 10 years before, now they were a kaleidoscope of life and color. There were snappers, large groupers, even sharks that I had never seen before. The entire system came back to pristine in just 10 years. It's extraordinary. So when we let, give nature some space, nature comes back spectacularly. And guess who's thriving also now? Those visionary fishermen. You know, they are making so much more money from tourism inside the reserve because people want to see a place with lots of fish, but also because of better fishing outside because these protected areas are like savings accounts with a principle that we set aside that produces returns. So when we create one of these protected areas, the fish come back spectacularly. And what happens with, when you don't kill the fish? Well, they take a longer time to die. They grow larger. They have more babies. So many of these fish that grow in the reserve spill over the boundaries of these reserves to help to replenish the areas surrounding. So it's these areas are like um, savings accounts. And the rest of the ocean that is not protected is like a bank account where everybody withdraws, but nobody makes a deposit. Now you tell me what's better for the fishermen. And how does that work on land? On land, we have great examples also where protected areas have been helping local communities. There are, well, again, there are four that have been used by traditional, by indigenous groups, like in most of the Amazon. Most of the Amazon is still protected in good shape because it, it's been used by local communities, not by industrial corporations. Industrial corporations turn color to black and white, turn a tropical forest with the largest biodiversity on the planet into a monoculture right, of soy or palm oil or whatever. Um, so there are many areas on the land where the, let me give you an, an example in Rwanda, the Volcanoes National Park. Mm -hmm. It's an area that has the, lar the last population of mountain gorillas, neighboring with the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda. This is an extraordinary place. There are only 1,000 mountain gorillas left in the world. And tourists flock there to see them because it's, it's one of the top wildlife experiences on the, on the planet. And people pay a lot of money to visit the gorillas and that protected area, that conservation business brings in more than $200 million to the economy of Rwanda. That means that the government can invest part of those profits into roads and schools and clinics. So the entire community benefits from the high-end tourism that not only keeps the gorillas alive, but improves the livelihoods of the people surrounding the park. So everybody there has a vested interest in the place being well protected and the gorillas still being on the mountain. 
Otherwise, the entire area would be an agricultural field. There would be no influx of uh, foreign money and the conditions of the locals would be, um, it would be worse. It's interesting because the examples you've given us are solutions. At a time when we often think about climate change, it feels overwhelming. It feels too large for the average person to contribute to, perhaps giving up plastic bottles or plastic bags is, is the biggest way they feel that they can contribute. But you've found solutions. So are you optimistic that we can get to where we need to be? You know, being a conservationist is <laughs> difficult to be optimistic. And... I heard uh, Sir David Attenborough being asked the same question. Are, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Mm. And he said, I, he said, I'm not, I'm neither. Mm. I am someone who believes in the impossibilities. Mm -hmm. And this is what I want to believe. You know, I have seen with my own eyes how nature comes back when we give her some space, both in the ocean and on the land. And when we bring back the riches of nature, also we bring back the riches of the human society. And, um, you know, we have uh, reached to a point where over half of the ocean is targeted by industrial fishing mm -hmm. and about half of the land has been transformed for food production. So we are at this tipping point. It's not too late. Most of the species are still here. And those species produce everything that we need. You know, every breath of air we take, the oxygen in, in the air is produced by plants. Every food morsel we put in our mouths is plants or animals that give their life for us. The climate, the carbon that is uh, stored, sequestered by also plants and, and, and bacteria that helps us mitigate climate change. Everything we need to survive depends on other species. And I see much more awareness. And now the Climate Convention of the United Nations and also the Convention on, on Nature and Biological Diversity um, are at a point where the countries of the world seem to be willing to agree to much more ambitious targets. And I believe that we can make it because it's not protecting butterflies or birds in some tropical forest. This is about us because we are an interdependent part of the natural world. Speaking of interdependence and countries, there is a sense that we're in an era where there's more polarization on the political stage. There are concerns that the current American administration does not really believe that climate change is an issue or that environmental initiatives are worth uh, investing too much in. And they're not the only ones. Brazil has just brought in a president who's, who's really a climate skeptic. So how much does that momentum get impacted by the politics that we're seeing? Yeah, politics can always be a problem when it comes to the environment. And right now you're right that there are some countries that use uh, the environment as a polarizing political tool. But then you have extreme leadership in some places. Here in Abu Dhabi, for example, there was a beautiful, there is a beautiful species of desert antelope called the Arabian oryx mm -hmm. with white bodies and beautiful mask, black mask around the eyes and long straight horns. The last individual was killed, was shot in 1972. That species became extinct in the wild, but Fortunately, there were some species living in zoos around the world. And Sheikh Zayed started uh, what would become the most successful reproduction program of an endangered species. So using individuals from all these zoos, the, the experts were trying to grow the population, bring it back into the field. And now in the United Arab Emirates alone, there are 
6,000 oryx back in the field, free-ranging in their natural habitat. This is one of the most extraordinary cases of bringing a species that was almost gone into a species that now has um, has left the the space of you know endangered, and this is an amazing example. You now, if it can happen here, it can happen everywhere. It just takes political leadership. That's wonderful. Thank you, Enrique. It's been a delight having this conversation with you. We could speak for many, many more hours on these important issues. I'm sure you'll be kept busy in Abu Dhabi during the World Ocean Summit, but as you continue your endeavors, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Mina.